What a week. I feel like I have been saying that exact phrase or something like it for the past year, each and every week. What a week. And again, this week, I find myself, and this time from a very personal place, um, saying what a week. Sunday night was uh, the start of our week, right? Sunday night was a, a, a good night in the Madisich home. Jenny and I and the boys sat down for dinner. We pulled out our first Lake Avenue Church family devotional guide. It, it went okay. Put the tree up, put the boys to bed. Jenny and I had this amazing discussion about some strategy around how we can make Jesus really big this Christmas with the boys and try to make presents a little bit smaller and and we worked through that and came up with a plan and went to bed with, with Christmas on our mind, the Advent season on our mind, full of joy. Monday night, I went to bed early, and at about 11.30 at night, I got a text from a childhood friend of mine who lives in Monrovia and said, hey, we both grew up in Ventura. He said, they're evacuating homes in Ventura, and there's a fire coming. I read the text, and I went back to sleep. And at 1.30 in the morning, I woke up, and I couldn't fall back asleep, so I decided to text my brother, who lives in Ventura, as well as my mom and stepdad, and just checked in on him. I said, are you guys okay? And he said, um, well, that, in fact, he was at work. He's a power plant operator, manager of one of the power plants there in Ventura. Um, but at about 11 o'clock that night, they were woken and had 20 minutes to grab whatever they could grab, and they were evacuated from their home and that his wife and my niece and nephew were at my mom's house and that he was at work trying to get power back up to the city, to the region. At 1.30, I said, hey, Paul, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. And he said, no, you don't, you don't need to come. Everything's fine. Just hope we get the power on. And I couldn't sleep. But somewhere around 5.30 in the morning, I get a text now from my seventh grade nephew. And that's all I needed to take the day off and, and get to Ventura. So I quickly got out of the house, somehow connected with my mom, asked what they needed, if there was any extra supplies, grabbed those, and made my journey home. Had a, a privilege of a day to be with my family while watching the news, the privilege of taking my niece and nephew out to lunch and to a movie to get their minds off of it. And, and around five o'clock, um, we got word that of the many homes that were burned, that my brother's home was one of them. The next day, they were able to go back to their home, and I promise you, they didn't hire a photographer to catch this moment, but the Associated Press was on their street and in front of their home, and I'd like to show you a couple pictures that were captured. That's my brother and my sister-in-law, and you are looking at their driveway and the retaining wall of their backyard. House stood between those two things. The next picture is a picture of my brother. Yeah. There are whole streets like that. All right, that's, that's good. Not just for my family, but for so many families. What a week, huh? A week that has been marked by despair and destruction and loss. And these kinds of feelings and these kinds of experiences and these kinds of realities are not just for the victims of the fires this week. For so many of you, it's been one of those weeks. 
Another week where a diagnosis has been delivered to you or to your family. Another week where there's a death of a loved one. Another week with the uncertainty of your future or of your own personal safety. Another week where you are reminded of the distance between yourself and your children or the distance that's in your family from one another. A week in which many of you have been treated with disrespect. Another week where many of you have been ignored, been minimized. Another week on the margins for so many of you. Another week of financial insecurity. Another week of global uncertainty and disappointment. And yes, another week of national uncertainty and disappointment. The brokenness and the heaviness of this life is crystal clear in these times. And they're crystal clear to me this week. The wrongs of this world are on full display. The darkness and the effects of sin with its far-reaching destruction and division are things, if we are honest, that we know so well because they flood our phones, our news feeds, our newspapers, and they flood our lives. Which is why Isaiah 35 is an ordained text for us this weekend at Lake Avenue Church. It's an incredibly timely text for where our world is at and where our community is at. Frankly, it's an important text for where I am at. And what I have come to see this week is that Isaiah 35 is a chapter of scripture that is weighty enough, that is heavy enough to hold up to the realities of this broken, destructive world. Isaiah 35 portrays a God who is big enough, who is strong enough, who is weighty enough to hold the destruction and brokenness of this past week. We can see a God who holds true in the sufferings and tragedy in this world, a God who brings salvation to the suffering and sin in this present world and into our lives. We get a picture of this God in Isaiah 35. This short chapter, 10 verses, this short chapter is a poem. It's a poem from the prophet that was given to a people at a time of exile. A people who should be experiencing intimacy with God, intimacy with one another. A group of people who should be living in a land that was given to them as an inheritance from God himself. But due to their sin, they are oppressed, they are suffering, they are experiencing destruction. And in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their oppression, they receive a gift of a promise of what God will do. They receive 10 verses that essentially announce the gift of salvation that will come to them. They announce that what they are going through and how they are living, it will change, and that God has not forgotten them. That God has not walked away from them. But rather, God will rescue them from their current state of suffering, their current state of sin, their current state of oppression. And in this announcement of salvation, joy shows up. For 34 chapters in the book of Isaiah, joy is really hard to find. But in chapter 35, joy shows up. Eugene Peterson, in his book, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, he likens Isaiah 35 as a, quote, interruption. 
Peterson observes that chapter 35 is an interruption that allows us to calm down and to catch our breath. And today and this week, I need and you need an Isaiah 35 interruption. We need to stop and calm down and catch our breath. And as we catch our breath from the heaviness of destruction and suffering, just as the original audience in Isaiah needed to catch their breath. And as we do that, we, as they did, will also get a glimpse of a God who holds up to the darkest realities. A God who enters them and brings salvation and redemption in the midst of them. And when we look at Isaiah 35 and this salvation gift begins to take the story over, there's a couple of profound things that happen. One, sin is silenced. And two, joy is birthed. Sin is silenced and joy is birthed. And as Jeremy has alluded, we're going to talk about joy this morning. And the word joy is everywhere this time of year. You could probably go to islands today, order a burger, and see the word joy. (laughs) Joy is everywhere. But what is joy? Joy is not a synonym for happiness. Joy isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling when we get to glimpse a, a newborn baby or a puppy or butterflies. Joy is all over the scriptures. Joy is a central theme for the follower of Jesus. Joy is an idea, is a, is, it shows up in the life of faithful following. And so as we look at Isaiah 35 and we look at this idea of joy being birthed, allow me just for a moment to make some comments about what joy is because I think it will help us understand what's happening. This by no means is a comprehensive definition of joy, just some observations in context of this week in this text. The first thing I want to suggest to you is that Christian joy, real joy, is honest. Joy is honest. Now, if we are honest as Christians, we have very shallow understanding and definition of joy. And the idea of it being honest, and I'll explain, is something far from us. It's at least far from some of our reputation. Right, joy, so often it's the happy face that we put on difficult circumstances. It's the idea that we're not going to let the real pain of this world impact us because we should be happy all the time. It feels, it feels cheesy to some. It shows up in phrases like, uh, let go and let God. Right? Especially when it's used in this kind of idea that, that uh, I'm, I'm holding on here because it's hard and it's dark and it's difficult in this world. And so God's over there. And so for me to experience God, I've got to let go of all this and then somehow come over to God as if God is not in the midst of this. Joy is honest. I love how Sarah Bessie A blogger, a writer, says this about Christian joy. Joy isn't emotionally or spiritually or intellectually dishonest. Christian joy doesn't mean that we're sticking our heads in the sand saying, it's fine, we're fine, everything's fine, while running past the gutter of broken dreams with our eyes averted. Joy isn't denial of grief 
or pretending happiness. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Joy is honest. James puts joy right inside the honest reality of trials, trials of many kinds. Joy is honest. It sits in the reality of sin and brokenness. Joy sits in the context of destruction. It doesn't deny it. It doesn't minimize it at any level. It sits right in the midst of honesty and of real life. Joy is honest. Joy is also evidence. Galatians 5 captures joy as fruit of the Spirit, meaning that joy is evidence of following Jesus. Joy is evidence of living a life led by the Spirit. Joy is evidence of a community following God and following the Spirit of God. Joy is evidence, the the ability to experience joy in life, and especially in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials, in the midst of destruction, is a marker of true discipleship. And so my question for us this morning and I guess if you're visiting us, I hope I know the answer to this, but do, you, do we exude joy at Lake Avenue Church? When people interact with us, do they experience joy, real joy, honest joy? Is there fruit in your life? Is there fruit in our church? Is there fruit in your Sunday school class? Is there fruit in your small group? Is there fruit in your marriage? Is there fruit? Because joy is going to show up Because joy is evidence. Joy will show up in spirit-led lives. Joy is going to show up in spirit-led communities. And it shows up at times right alongside disaster and right alongside oppression. So often, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have this, we're grumpy. Everybody's wrong. We're right. Just, if everybody could just know what I know, even within the community, the grumpiness, the entitlement, the, the idea that I, the longer you've been at a church or the many years you call yourself a Christian, it's almost like the joy decreases for some of us. Joy is evidence. If joy isn't showing up in your life, if joy isn't showing up in our life as a church, we've got a, a bigger problem to address. So joy is honest, joy is evidence. But joy is also now and not yet. Christian joy is rooted in the reality of the kingdom of God. And in this season of Advent, we celebrate that as Jesus came to this earth, joy has come to us through him. We celebrate that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross for salvation of all peoples. And because of this reality, joy is something that the follower of Jesus can taste in this life, can experience in this life. And for as difficult as a season that my family is in, I will give testimony and witness all day long that I have experienced joy this week. When my my nephew, within 24 hours, gets a knock on the door at my mom's house where they're now living for a bit, And he opens up the door and his entire Boy Scout troop is there with a uniform, with every patch he's ever earned already sewn on, restoring back to him some of what he has lost. That's joy. Because we can experience joy because joy is going to show up. And when a right 
When a wrong is made right, when restoration happens, when reconciliation happens, when what is broken, what is lost, what is destroyed, when those movements of restoration, when those experiences of completeness, of justice, we taste joy. So joy is for now. We can taste it. And yet, as people of the second advent, we also await the fullness of the kingdom of God coming in which all will be made right. All will be restored. Where there'll be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more destruction, no more bigotry, no more sexual assault, no more sin. So while you and I can have tastes of joy now, we also know that joy will come in its fullness when Christ returns, and we long for that day. So this is our framework of joy. Joy is honest. It doesn't ignore, it doesn't deny the realities. Joy should show up. It's evidence. It's evidence of following Jesus. It's evidence of a spirit-led life, a spirit-led church. Joy can be experienced now, and in its fullness, it will come in full. At the end, it will come in full. So with this framework, let me suggest that what we have in Isaiah 35, in this rich poem, are some reasons for joy, are some reasons why we can experience joy because of what God is doing and what God will bring in this gift of salvation. So a couple observations. One, from verses 1 and 2, 6 and 7. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Uh, Verse 6, water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. It's incredibly uh, artistic and poetic imagery that to the original hearers of this poem would make crystal clear sense. It's a juxtaposition of the land, the deserts versus the lush realities of Lebanon. I'm grateful that we live in a state where I can, we, we can relate, we can understand. The context of driving out the 10 freeway in the desert and the open and the vastness where nothing grows, where it's dry, where the, where the, the soil struggles to produce something. And then Yosemite. The Sierras, the desert and the wilderness, parched and ruined lands. We have reason for joy because what we see in this gift is that desolation turns to abundance. The desert and the wilderness, the parched and ruined and desolate lands, they're going to be restored and renewed to be like the lands of the north, Lebanon for its cedars, Carmel, Sharon, Yosemite, the Sierras, Oregon, the beauty, the lush landscapes. These lands will go through a transformation. Water will emerge where there is none. What is burning will turn into a pool. Where it is barren, it will be covered with newness. And once, what once was nothing will become plentiful. Restoration and transformation from ruined lands to plentiful landscapes. From suffocating soil that struggles to produce to an abundance. Isaiah announces that desolation will turn into abundance in this reality. 
This reality, brothers and sisters, that God will give in abundance to all of his creation and that it will be so dramatic that the creation itself will sing, will shout, will scream for joy. The creation, the transformation, the restoration, it alone will give witness to salvation. And this is good news to us, especially this week. Because God takes what is desolate in our lives and hearts. God takes what is parched and drained in our lives and our hearts. God takes what is burned in our lives and in our hearts, and he enters those places, and he makes abundance out of those nothing spaces. Reason for joy. Another reason we can experience joy Found in verses three through six. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come and he will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. In these verses, we get this picture that the weariness... The limitations move to places of healing. That the places of weariness and limited spaces become healed. Remember, joy is honest. Notice the honesty of these limitations and the weariness of the human experience, of the human life. Hands are tired. Knees become weak. Hearts turn fearful. Eyes are blind, ears aren't hearing, people can't walk, people can't speak. Life takes a physical toll on our bodies. They break down. They don't function as they should. There are very real weaknesses in this life, and there are very real limitations. And in the midst of this, we have a promise of salvation. And that promise is one of healing, and that healing will come. And that the limitations and the weaknesses that are experienced in our lives will be transformed and they too will be healed. And because it's the word of God and it's just so profound, it's not just physical limitations that Isaiah is referring to. There's a spiritual dimension to this. The spiritual weariness, the spiritual limitations. Already in the book of Isaiah, he's referenced a few times this concept of blindness as it relates to being spiritually blind. Being unable to see God or to see his ways or to see uh, the reality of of God. And so in verse 5, it's not just a reference to a physical healing, but a spiritual healing and awakening. That God will deliver new sight to people. That people who once could not see God will awaken to God. People who said, I'd never step foot in a church or I don't want to do anything with Jesus... And we have reason for joy because he enters those people, people like me, people like you, and gives us new eyes to see. We have reason for joy because sight will come. The ability to see and experience God in the midst of our limited and weary lives and bodies, that God enters them and he grants healing. And so in that healing, we have this opportunity to see him, to see the world, and to see our circumstances in light of something much bigger. 
in light of the love and the salvation of Jesus Christ, and it gives us reason for joy. Finally, in verses 8 to 10, this great image of a highway. It says, a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And the sorrow and the sighing will flee away. Another reason that we can have joy is that God, his gift of salvation, offers us a road that was once dangerous to a road of complete freedom. This imagery of a road was incredibly important to those who would hear this the first time. Remember, this is a group of people who used to own the land. They used to be in charge. And there were literally roads that connected Judah to its neighbor and the north and the south. And, and, and those were their roads. But now they're under Assyrian rule. They're not their roads anymore. They've been overtaken. They are in exile. The freedom with which they once traveled from place to place, they are, they are limited now. They're not their roads. They're somebody else's roads. And you bet when they looked at those roads that were traveled once or traveled all the time that are never traveled because it's dangerous, both from the Assyrian occupation and from, from nature, it looks like. Those roads weren't traveled anymore, and God gives them a gift of a new road. And he says this. He acknowledges the danger, right? Because joy is honest. God is honest. He says, there'll be a new road, a new highway, and it's, it's, it's mine. It's my road. And he promises his protection. He promises it from those that can steal and destroy, and he offers his rescue from the dangers, and he gives his people a way. There are still dangerous roads for people, both literally and metaphorically. I mean, here at Lake Avenue Church, we are, we're trying to be more in tune with the realities of the danger of those who are refugees or immigrants. They're fleeing one land, and they don't own the road and the journey from one space to another, and what lies in front of them in those journeys, the, the danger. And to those folks, think about the joy of hearing that there's a, there's a road, and on this road, God has you. The road of your life, many of you. We get this messed up. Did you know that God might be calling you to situations that are high risk and have some danger to them? He doesn't call you away from all of that. But he says this, as, I, as you travel along your road, you'll be on my road and I got you. That the dangerous and risky places and the people that God calls us towards, in the midst of real danger, God offers his protection and his freedom. And there is freedom on his road. There is freedom in his family. There is freedom from what is dangerous. Rescue and freedom are so strong in Isaiah 35 that the, this closing image, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. They will enter a new place as a new people, and they are, they're going to be people of joy, 
people of everlasting joy. The not yet aspect of joy will come to be. They will be people of gladness and that the pain and the darkness and the destruction and the sin of this world and the sin of our lives will be no more. And this is why it is called good news. I don't know about you. I mean, I've shared about my week, but I needed an interruption from God this week and I pray you needed one too. I hope and pray as we look at Isaiah 35, it's shown you a picture of our God and that our God stands up in the midst of the difficulty and destruction of this world. I pray that over the course of even being together this morning, you've been able to catch your breath. Catch your breath from all that is going on in and around us. And as you've caught your breath, that you even now begin to breathe in the promise of God. And as you breathe in what God will do, as you breathe in the word of God, that you will be able to breathe and experience and taste joy. This is Advent. This eager anticipating, this hopeful waiting for a baby being born who among many things will interrupt the devastation in this world who will come right into the pain and darkness of this world and usher in a new way of living. And we celebrate his first coming in Jesus, and we're going to celebrate that like wild around here. But we're also going to await his second coming. And as we wait, we can wait in joy. Because we, like the desert and wilderness, will be able to sing and celebrate because abundance comes from desolation. We, like the blind, can give praise because healing has come to our eyes and we have been awakened to the love of God and the mission of God in our lives and in this world. We have reason for joy because he's provided a road for you and for me. And it's his road And on his road, he offers his presence. He offers his freedom. Along the way and on this journey, you and I have reason, great reason for joy. Joy to overtake us. We have reason to sing. We have reason to dance. Because joy is available. Joy is honest. It's evidence. It's now and not yet. And my prayer is that you experience that kind of joy this week. And that he will turn your mourning into dancing. That he will lift you from your sorrows. I've been struck by all these amazing Christmas songs we sing. And and, and Jeremy's right, joy shows up in most of them. But it's so interesting, the the shifts of how joy moves, shows up. Joy sometimes has a a happy beat to it. And it's pretty optimistic and it's it's pretty fun to sing. And then joy creeps in in some very honest places too. Last week we sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, joy in the midst of a longing heart, or as we have sung today, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our hearts by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows. 
put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Lake Avenue. Join me in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for the interruption of Isaiah 35. This interruption of salvation that has come into not just your word, but into this world through Jesus Christ, your son. We say thank you. God, thank you that you are a God that holds up to the darkest and deepest realities of this world, that you enter them, that you transform them, that you move from places of desolation and dryness to abundance. Thank you, God, that you take what is weak and limited in this world and in our lives and you bring healing. Thank you that you haven't left us alone, that you have provided a way. You've provided your presence and your promise to us. And I pray for those in this room right now who joy feels like a far-off concept, something to never be experienced, it's just not gonna happen, and if you only knew, God, that real honest joy because of the promise that you give us would overtake this church and overtake our lives, that we would be able to give witness to the power of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.